Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Owen O'Sullivan and today's guest on the show is Neil from Delorentos. Delorentos are one of my favourite bands uh, to come out of Ireland. One of my favourite bands, full stop. They've been around for well over a decade at this stage. I think they kind of started around 2005, released a couple of tracks, a couple of uh, EPs and then released In Love With Detail back in 2007 when I was really starting to get into... uh, music had a show on core campus radio thursday morning breakfast show with Cullum now of no encore and with uh good friend paul drigomani who you've heard uh on this podcast before discussing meet me in the bathroom the book about uh naughty's guitar music and delarentos came along at the perfect time for us i loved in love with detail and then uh, they split up and then they got back together and they released another couple of albums they won the choice prize for little sparks back in 2013, and uh, I was on the Choice Prize judging panel that year, and yeah, you could tell the love around the table for that album, but they didn't rest on their laurels. They've uh, released another couple of albums since. They had their biggest hit of their career, Secret, uh, which just has a ridiculously catchy uh, chorus. And then earlier this year, around April, May, they released True Surrender, which is another like stellar collection of uh, tracks. It's a really positive album. It's something that I discuss with Neil in the interview that's going to follow. We talk about, yeah, Del Vento's journey to date. And yes, we do discuss that split, which I'm sure that they are sick of talking about. But uh, I was feeling a little nostalgic. So I said, um, I said I'd mention it to him and yeah, it was a really, it was a really, really good interview. He's a really uh, interesting guy and Delarentos are a great band and there there was a lot that we didn't discuss because when he, a, a lot of the time on this podcast, it's new bands, new acts are relatively new, like a couple of years into their career who we're talking to. Delarentos are, <laughs> for lack of a better, uh, a better term, they're long in the tooth now. They've been around for over a decade and uh, you can you can say or not say that uh, True Surrender, that experience comes to bear, but there's a real um, confidence that exudes through these songs. And they discuss a lot of things that bands might shy away from. I think, I think it's a really, really strong album and I expect to see it on the Choice Prize next year. But um, yeah, we talk about the recording process of that album, how Delavento's worked with... Uh, Tommy McLaughlin, who you've heard lots about on the podcast before, um, up in Donegal, and they also recorded a couple of, or they also worked on a couple of songs with uh, Rich Egan, aka Jape, as well, who's never been on this podcast. It's about time he was on this podcast, wasn't it? Uh, so yeah, you can hear uh, Neil coming up shortly. Delavantos are heading out on a German tour uh, shortly, and they're also heading out on an Irish tour starting on October. 13 they're in Cavanaghs in Port Leash they're in Kilkenny Set Theatre October 14th then yeah they're off to Berlin for a few shows they're playing Debarras on October 26th my favourite venue in the country Spiegel Tent in Wexford October 27th Cypress Avenue in Cork October 28th Mike the Pies in Listowel November 1st Roisin Dove on November 2nd Dolan's November 3rd McHugh's in Belfast on November 8th Spirit Store in Dundalk on November 9th. And then, oh, it's the big one. Olympia Theatre. Dublin's Olympia Theatre, November 10th. I'm going to be out of the country. Ah, that's disappointing. November 10th, the Olympia Theatre, Del Rentos. This is going to be a really, really great show. Uh, definitely get along if you can. Uh, they're a really good uh, 
live act. And yeah, I've rambled on long enough. It's about time that uh, I let Neil take over the reins. So here's uh, myself talking to Neil from De Laurentos about their new album, True Surrender. Uh, it's been about six months now since uh, the release of your latest album. How, how are you feeling about it now, a couple of months on from, from release day? Uh, pretty good, to be honest with you, Owen. Um, we, we kind of turned ourselves inside out a little bit with this album, so we weren't really sure what to expect, partially because it took so long to make and because we felt it sounded very different too, you know. So we'd, we'd had a, like a really interesting time of it with like Little Sparks and Night Becomes Light, the two albums that we did with Rob Kerwin. Um, you did like Hosier's like two albums and stuff, really, really cool Irish producer that's worked with PJ Harvey and stuff. But we, we wanted to do something completely different. So we weren't really sure where that would take us, you know, in terms of would people like us, uh, you know, would people care <laughs> as much as we did. Um, but it's been really interesting, to be honest. You see, the response has been pretty cool. Like the, the live shows have changed an awful lot. And um, I'm really proud of it. You know, I think, it's a, I think it's a really, really good album. I think it's something that... Um, it's always difficult, like in a band, like you want to leave some sort of a legacy. I mean, God knows, like everyone I know that's in music or film or or, or art or um, or the writers, it's a it's a tricky tricky old thing to get yourself up and do dust yourself off time and time again to make new things. So, um, I think we realise how privileged we are t- to do that. So. You know, to do five albums, six if you include our acoustic album, is an amazing achievement. Most of our peers like haven't haven't stuck it out. Like you know, most of the people we started with or we came up with aren't around anymore. So I'm really proud of that, and I know that like you know this this album checked a whole bunch of bucket list list things for me personally. Like we got to work with Richie Egan from the Redneck Manifesto, who's like a, a personal hero of mine. I have a photograph of him playing my bass guitar, which is absolutely awesome for me like you know and um and we got to record with tommy mclaughlin he's an absolutely fantastic producer he, he obviously did the first couple of villagers albums and soak and plays with villagers and soak and um, so to kind of to get yourself to a stage where creatively you can work with uh, people that you really respect and you're not laughed out of the room which is always something that's in the back of your mind and um, that was that was really special you know Wow, there, there's so much to unpack there. I feel like we could just leave it there and I'd actually be pretty satisfied. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, l- let's go back to one thing that you said. Uh, you wanted to do something different with uh, this album. Where where did that idea come from? Like, was it? W- did you have something in mind and you were like, no, nah, it's, it's too like what we did before? I remember when we f- did our first album, which is obviously a real kind of guitar album and it's a lot of songs about it love and first loves and stuff like that where we played a gig with a band who were probably about 10 15 years older than us and we were supporting them and um there was it's hard to describe without being kind of disingenuous but i kind of felt like they weren't being true to their themselves like their age like they were certainly you know coming across as if they were a more youthful band than they actually were and the, the music didn't track with what they were like as people off stage and I think it's really important for a band to evolve you know like so if if a band is supposed to resonate in any way shape or form it's by making music or writing songs or lyrics or, or projecting an idea that people will uh, react to, uh, authentically or, or credibly right because it's, it's it's a real idea expressed in an authentic way uh, and it's not phony it's not fake it's not trying to be uh, something that will like 
shift units or be fashionable. You know, we are like products of our upbringing, right? We're, we're from the outskirts of Dublin City. We're all from Fingal. We were never really part of like the cool kind of skinny trouser um, music scene that was like, that was all the rage when we started. You know, we've always kind of been kind of bundling along in our own way. And, and even the, not having a record label or an agent meant that when we played in like Moscow or Mexico or, or Berlin or Spain, it was always like the other venue, you know, not the kind of live nation place or not the like super well-known festival. And as a result, I think we got exposed to the bands that we would never have seen otherwise, you know, like, and really interesting kind of fringe musicians and like some of them amateurs, some of them professionals, some of them, painters that were musicians on the side or you know <clears throat> and I think that really influenced us you know I, I think that like seeing that it's possible to evolve over time and not be kind of sucked into this treadmill of you've got to you've got to scale the ladder and you've got to get to this level you've got to level up here and you've got to kind of pick up all the kudos points and do this that and the other if you just do something that's real that reflects like what you're listening to what you're actually going through in your life and somebody out there will bound to feel the same right and then, then they'll like it and then the people that you're playing the music to will enjoy it and won't feel like it's forced upon them you know so I think we've gotten better at being honest and um, and that means that to answer your question when it gets to the next album it has to be an evolution it has to be something different it has to be something different every time you know because life is different you've got three years or two years worth of experience that has changed your perspective entirely you know and like if an album is a snapshot of a band at a moment in time then it's bound to be different right yeah um and and speaking of that first album as well like it is a real snapshot in time in love with detail it's one of my favorite irish albums that's come out like in uh, oh, cool. in the in in the noughties anyway you know um like Thanks. do you still do you still play much of it live or are you like that is all in the past let's forget about that no, no, we definitely do. In fact, we're um, we've been talking about retooling a few of the songs to change them slightly to kind of create medleys and stuff. Yeah, it's it's the funny thing. I don't know if you have the same experience, but like when you come across something that you've done years ago, certainly from our perspective, you associate with it with, with certain things. Like there's when when we play some of those album, um, some of the songs from that album, I can picture myself at specific gigs or moments in life. You know, like there's a bridge in Eustace Street and I can picture uh, an NCAD ball that we did where like two of our mates turned up unexpectedly on the stage. And every time we play that song, no matter where we are in the world, that picture comes into my mind, you know. And it's, um, yeah, I think it's important to still kind of, you know, you don't walk away from what you've, do you've done. Like we're proud of everything that we've done, but um, also proud of the fact that the band's changed a lot. I think that like that band and this band are two different bands and that's okay. Yeah. And and like you mentioned, the other bands who uh, have split along the way. And I know that De Laurentos, all of you guys are probably tired of talking about that uh, split back in back in about 10 no, years no, ago. A, and I've been, I've been feeling in I've been feeling in a bit of a nostalgic mood lately up on um, the point of everything <laughs> this week. I, I put up like 10 years since uh, Fight Like Apes released their debut album. And oh, yeah, uh, so and then I was thinking, and then I was thinking, yeah, it was. Wait, when did De Laurentiis split up? Just while I was kind of getting ready for this interview, and it says that it's February two thousand and nine that you split up. So I'd say it's around like ten years ago, 
uh, that you might have been talking about splitting up. And I was looking at the Wikipedia entry. I don't know if you ever uh, seen the Wikipedia entry about like your split. I'll re- I'll read out a little bit about it, and then maybe you can just kind of uh, talk about that time. We won't dwell on it because I feel like you've kind of discussed oh, it enough. But um, Wikipedia says uh, in December two thousand and eight, Delarentos explained in their MySpace blog that a potential <laughs> record deal had fallen through due to the uh, prospective label encountering financial problems. Added to this, the coll- the collapse of Pinnacle, their distribution company, denied the band a chance to release their album in the UK. Their blo- their blog entry stated that these are strange times for everyone, and for us in the music industry, there has been a lot of uncertainty. It just happened that our opportunity coincided with this extraordinary time. After performing a number of shows with fellow Dubliners director, Delarentos announced their breakup on se- uh, February seventeenth, two thousand and nine. How how does that make you feel? Is that an accurate reflection of uh, of everything behind it? <laughs> so much of that is great so dated MySpace blog <laughs> even playing a director that's mad um, yeah I mean I think if I'm being honest we were broke, breaking up for a couple of months you know I, that um, that blog post we weren't going to put anything out but our manager at the time insisted that we were clear so that if anybody was wondering they knew I guess that they wouldn't be hassling uh, him or us or whatever that it was just clear um, that had been going on for months I'd forgotten about the pinnacle thing, to be honest with you, because the, obviously the record deal, it was the first time, having released the first album ourselves on our own label and really enjoying that kind of, you know, picking up thousands of CDs in the back of my Cinquecento and dropping them off to record shops and stuff. That's kind of cool, you know, like, uh, you know, um, Kieran and I are big evangelists for independent stuff, not least independent bands, you know. And so that was kind of a cool thing to go through. And then all of a sudden these guys came along, you know, like you're kind of... Mr. America, money bags, blank check people. And uh, the guy that was involved in Virgin, I think he'd been like, I think he'd been responsible for the White Stripes first deal. And um, there was a couple of kind of songwriter guys and some people we didn't meet. It's all like kind of exciting and weird at the same time. And I know we kind of felt a bit ambiguous about it. Like on the one hand, it's like, that seems like a great opportunity. On the other hand, even then, they were like, there's like a lady who was like, oh, you're going to have to lie about your ages because you're too old at whatever we were, 24 or something at the time. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it's really weird and insidious as well, like, you know. But um, yeah, essentially, we had taken ages to make You Can Make Sound. Uh, all of this had gone on. The economy collapsed. Most of our mates started emigrating. You know, we were all broke. Uh, we couldn't do anything with the songs that we had. And... You know, at the time, Roe left, but it could have been any one of us. You know, there was all sorts of personal stuff going on with people's in people's lives, um, plenty of reasons, you know, to walk away. That would, and to be honest with you, I think it was the best thing that happened to the band. Uh, that might sound kind of counterintuitive, but um, we had to kind of blow it up to start again. I don't think we realised that, you know. And I remember during that period of time, me and Roe would have spent quite a bit of time in coffee shops just talking, you know. And there was a weird mixture of, like, relief and nervousness and then when we decided to you know okay well let's record this album you know uh, it was Kieran I think that had the idea as well that we should get Roe to play his parts um, so I talked to Roe and he agreed to do that and then by the end of the process it was so much fun with Garrett Mannix and getting a you know an album together finally a second album together that's, that we talked about getting back together and I, I actually felt a bit weird about that because I didn't want to you know it's like you know you're spurned by a a partner and then they come back to you, you know, you're wary, right? Um but we kind of we've we went forward together in like good faith and we promised to be honest with each other and to give each other a break, you know, that it wasn't 
it was about first and foremost, you know, we made a pact that we were friends, right? And and that might sound lame, sound lame, but like there are times when you'd be surprised, like something comes up, you're like, oh, I know you've broken your leg, but uh, we have this Brazilian gig, so you know, how about these pay- Brazilian painkillers? <laughs> you know, like. In actual fact, is and people's headspace as well. Like you, know, it's happened loads of times with people being absolutely burnt out, and shattered, and you have to kind of go, okay, well, maybe now's not the time to do this, and that's cool. Like because we want four people that are on the same page, you know. Like they are the three guys in the band um, are amongst the most creative people I've ever met in my life, and like I, I really treasure the time that I get to spend with them, and I think that we're all more grateful as a result of it going away. And to be honest with you, like we've had everything that could go wrong for a band go wrong. And like some of which we talk about, some of which we don't, you know, and we're still here. And like, there comes a point, I think, where the music you make or whatever it is that you're creating becomes more authentic because you're not as concerned about the bullshit. You know, I think that like, it was such a freeing experience writing True Surrender because like our attitude was much much better and the same actually working with Rob Kerwin like Little Sparks was like the album that we made after the breakup and it was a completely new approach like we we had you know Roe always wanted us to expand our musical ideas outside of just the guitar band and we really did that like you know I, I, that was the first time I think I got like a an iPad mini and I started running um, different music programs through guitar pedals and amps um, Ross really started to flourish as a producer and an engineer in his own right. And, and like the music changed as a result. It wasn't just walking four guys play in a room or in a club, you know, it was a completely different approach. And it's so much more fun. And like, don't, don't get me wrong, like it can suck, but like, so can putting the bins out on a Monday morning. You know what I mean? Like I, I was, I, I was talking to, um, do you know the Dublin footballer Dermot Connolly? Do you know that fella? Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the gag guy. Yeah. Like, it's just really interesting because I don't know a lot of I don't know any professional gamblers, but like the the notion that you give up so much of your life, like your 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 everything that you have, you know, the the weddings you miss, the, the the birthdays you miss, and all that kind of jazz, and like it's a vocation, you know. Aren't aren't we lucky that anyone wants to have a listen to the stuff that we make, or or aren't we lucky that like the, the shit that we make together that we enjoy making it, or we think it sounds decent, you know? Like it's it's awesome. And once you get by all the bullshit, which really doesn't matter, like, it, like none of that nonsense matters. Like, there's a difference. And I definitely find that, because I'm back and forth between London and Dublin quite a bit, like, there's a real difference between fashion and culture. And, like, one of the bad things about music, the music business, is that people get caught up in the fashion of it, you know, rather than the culture. You know, there is really, really fantastic music made in Ireland. Like, we punch above our weight so much. And, and like, nothing has convinced me more of that than spending a bit of time in the UK and even abroad in general. Like, there is fantastic music that's made for its own sake. And I know, like, obviously, Hardwood and Class Heroes has just finished. But, like, year after year, we produce amazing stuff. And, like, I think it's because our attitude is focused more on what's good rather than what looks good. Do you get me? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess the thing that you'd, you'd counter with there is like, as, as you kind of alluded to uh, earlier, like a, a lot of your peers have broken up, like a lot of bands kind of like are one and done. They, you know, there's no kind of longevity there. Yeah. What, like in, yeah. in general? Uh, just in just in terms of like you know the the music industry in Ireland like 
it, it can look great. You know, we punch above our weight and stuff, but then it's just kind of like, oh, that band never did anything else. You know, they released a, a good EP or they released a good album and then they were gone. You know, there's just no... Yeah. You, you know, one, once they actually see that side of it, and I guess that that's what happened with you guys as well, you know, you got to experience, like, all of that amazing stuff with that first album, you know, like, wide-eyed excitement at seeing, um, yeah, you know, like, getting talked up by this guy who managed the, or who released the first White Stripes album. But then I, it sounds like you got more realistic after after that split and you were like, well, let's not believe the bullshit anymore. Whereas I think that a lot of people who do start creating uh, music now and who release an album or something, they do have that wide-eyed enthusiasm. And then when it's uh, when they experience a big bump in the road or something, they're like, oh, fuck this, I'm not doing this again. Yeah, no, you, you make an interesting point. You might have a point there. Um, I think it's the, the fascinating thing is you, you know, you mentioned let's we decided let's forget about the bullshit. It, I find it interesting. Some people say that and then make saying that the thing that they focus on as well. Yeah, we're all about not talking about the bullshit, but <laughs> yeah. we're we're essentially about talking about that. Where in actual fact, it's not really something that we talk about. We just get on with it, and we've kind of gotten on with it all over the world and for five albums. You know what I mean? Like it, it has been like a okay, well, we can do this We can do this tour and that'll pay for an acoustic album that we'll do for a record store day. Or, you know, like, um, yeah, maybe if we do, like, a month solid uh, together doing pre-production in our own little studio, then we'll have more money to do a, uh, an album with Tommy, which would be amazing. And, uh, and you know, we kind of think about it in the, like, it's an opportunity the whole time <laughs> as opposed to just, yeah, we're not into bullshit because what we talk about is how authentic we are. We just try and do the fucking work. Like, do you know what I mean? So, like, yeah, you, you released Little Sparks then a couple of years ago and it won the Choice Prize. Was that just kind of like, like, uh, kind of satisfying? You know, it's like, okay, we've been recognized, you know, we stuck to it and we've, you know, gotten this success. It was amazing. It was really, really great. Um, I know that, like, when when we first started Delorentos, before Roe joined, Kieran was a big part of, like, Tumped and Things That You're Missing and all those kind of underground kind of music communities and stuff. And they were all really, really good musicians doing cool and proper, credible music, you know? And there was always something, I think, in the back of our mind, or like, do they think we're not? Or do they think we're any good? And we never, obviously, being Irish, never talked about it, never asked them. Uh, just speculated <laughs> amongst ourselves. And um, and when it came to the Choice Prize, like, we had, there were so many people that we really respected, had, had won it, obviously, before, been nominated. Like, I remember the first album got nominated, and we thought Kathy Davy would win that year. I think that was the year Super Extra Bonus Party won. Um, so that like the caliber of music was so high, like you know the, the standard rather. Um, and uh, the other thing about Little Sparks is that we were kind of forced to innovate an awful lot. Like you know, as you said, like Pinnacle had gone bust. We had like loads of debt. You know, um, we were lucky enough to be able to work with Rob, but for the most part, we didn't have any way of kind of putting it out properly. So. And also, all the record shops had gone bust, if you remember, during that period, like after the crash, like especially in all the kind of smaller towns, like where we're from, or like Drada and Dundalk and Waterford and all that jazz. So we had kind of set up uh, pop-up shops where we took over vacant spaces um, and we kind of did a couple of gigs during the course of the day. And if people wanted to get the new album, they could get it there. And we really enjoyed that period. Like uh, I had kind of gone through a phase in Dublin of, of running a show called a monthly general meeting on the same idea where you take a vacant space 
once a month and you'd showcase filmmakers, musicians, uh, writers, comedians. And that was a really cool thing. Like, you know, and I think I feel like that during that period of time, there was a lot of innovation going on in Dublin. There's a lot of people trying stuff, you know, like brown bread mixtape and milk and cookies and all those kind of really cool spoken word nights. Um, and to be kind of part of that and like properly, like, you know, doing something that was like, okay, well, there's no record shops. We don't have any money. Ross's dad has a camper van. Let's just throw all our gear in there and drive around the country and, and, and kind of take over vacant spaces. And it was, it was really enjoyable. Like, it was a really nice thing. And it felt like after all the crap that had gone on with You Can Make Sound and Breaking Up and this, that, and the other. And by the way, like, our manager left as well. And there was all that kind of jazz. And um, it was a really special time. And like, we, like we played the choice music. We didn't, re- we didn't think we'd win at all. And we were flying out the next day to go to America and Canada and Russia and stuff on tour. It was just bizarre. Like, it was, it was really cool. Like, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, no, sorry, yes. To answer your question, yes, it was great. <laughs> and and just moving up, just like g- getting uh, closer to True Surrender, like, then you kind of went away and uh, made You Can Make Sound and wrote your biggest hit. Uh, to date, secret. Uh, yes. Like, was that? Uh, w- were you like, let's let's write a fucking amazing hit that's going to be big on radio, or was it just like, oh, where this where this track come from? Like, how intentional was it? Well, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, a lot of that, if not all of that, was down to Ross, who came up with the the spine of that song himself initially. Then Kieran kind of helped with the the methodical metronomic chorus stuff. And then I remember, like, me and Ross jamming for ages, doing the Middle Eight and all this kind of stuff. But then when it came to it, like, you know, Ross did all this really cool, it was the first bit, bits of kind of electronic guitar pop that we started doing, you know, like, he, he started really coming into his own and Pro Tools. So, like, that evolved naturally. It wasn't like, it wasn't like, let's write a banger or, oh, this is clearly a single. Like, at the time, everybody was all over the shop. So it was really just, like, you know, this is another, like, there's loads of songs in that period that we didn't release, and uh, the our, our sound guy did, like, a, a pre-production session with us, and there's another, like, 10 songs that he's always going on about that we should release, that we've just kind of put to one side. And, um, but yeah, it was just, it just happened, it honestly happened organically, that, like, Ross was kind of really, as I say, coming into his own on Pro Tools, and had built his little studio, we had jammed it out quite a few times, and I think that song and um, a, cu- a couple of the others on You Can Make Sound were kind of forced to be as good as possible, as quick as possible, because we didn't have that much time. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it was just a happy accident. Like, uh, we didn't expect it to be taken up so much by radio, and uh, and it was, and it still does it. Uh, it's really nice, like, live, to see the reaction to it and stuff. So, yeah, no, it, like, well, I don't think we've ever sat down and said, like, let's write a real catchy tune because well we have and they've they're probably been shit and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've never done something like you know and and then night becomes light uh followed that and then when when did you move to uh london um well i kind of i spend half and half uh i've been here for about four years but i, I kind of spent half my time in dublin and half my time in london i was um I had a mentor over here, a guy called Richard Copcus. He used to be the drummer in a band called Soldiers of Destiny. And um, he was uh, he was the head of Converse, really kind of interesting guy. He would like, 
you know, it was a real ex-punk second wave of punk in London. You know, had his first kid in a, a, a squat and worked in market stalls and worked his way up. And anyway, eventually he was involved with the Hundred Club, who uh, Converse kind of kept it open. So I was um, asked to help out with with that. Uh, we knew Jeff Horton a bit through that that whole kind of period. So um, for the last couple of years, had been doing that with the Hundred Club, just helping them kind of keep the show on the road. And um, and obviously spending an awful lot of time back in Dublin with the bands, we were writing, recording, or touring. Um, and for a while, I was running live shows over here, which is based on the monthly general meetings that we did in uh, in Dublin. So we did quite a few shows here where we had like the likes of Ashley and B, um, a bunch of different filmmakers, Luke Franklin, lots of different people um, performed. Dave Kynan, who did, went on to do uh, Dublin Old School. Um, but yeah, so it, I'm back and forth quite a bit. But to be honest with you, we do so much traveling with the band. You may as well live anywhere, you know. Yeah, that, like there was never any talk of like uh, let's let's break up the band again. I can't do this anymore. No, no, no. Like I say, I mean, our attitude, life has moved on. Like a couple of the like, guys have kids and and all that kind of stuff. And I think ever since the um, ever since the band broke up and got back together, you know, we've just had a really good attitude to things you know like we're it's kind of like yeah you know Richie was saying himself about like being him and Matty being in Sweden and the Rednecks have kind of done a couple albums during that period um you know uh, it's, it's not too dissimilar I guess to Connor from Villagers and his keyboard player um or guitarist rather living living in Wales and drummer living in Wales you know it's it's a uh, the nature of being a musician you know even Dan who's managing this now manages Tindersticks and their singer lives in France and most of the rest of the band are in England. One was in Belgium. Um, yeah, it's a cool thing about uh, for as long as the European Union lasts. Huh? <laughs> we <can> kind of <laughs> uh, hopefully it'll. Last well, my next question was going. My next question was going to be about Brexit. Tell me about what uh, how Rich Egan helped with uh, the album to surrender. Oh, um, it's really cool, actually. So Richie had been. Um, Interestingly, he had been writing music for Becca's Bunch, which is this TV show that um, my my friend is writing for, the, the guy that ran the monthly general meetings with me. And so his time is limited. Um, what we did was we bounced a lot of tracks back and forth, and um, he tried to get us to think differently about how we um, how we kind of arranged some of the songs. And in the end, we only got to work on three songs together. Um, the rest was obviously with, with Tommy. But, um, but, you know, he was, he was getting us to listen to the likes of Dirty Projectors and imagine what kind of, not just like pitch-corrected vocals and stuff like that, but also like uh, what kind of asymmetrical beats or like uh, off-beat uh, programs, bass we could use to kind of, the kind of things that, like it's something that I remember Ross and I used to really like about like, a, do you know that song Shady Lane by Pavement? Have you ever heard that song? Oh Maybe. yeah, yes. Do you know tune. the chorus? Yeah, beautiful. But you know the way um, when he sings the chorus, there's a, like a little discordant guitar uh, that goes over the. Just after he says "Shady Lane," uh, everybody's got uh, "Shady Lane." Everybody's got one. You know that kind of. There's a guitar underneath that's like a that's discordant, and it, it draws your ear to the nice thing, which is the melody, right? So it makes the melody nicer. So by having something slightly discordant, it forces you to focus more on the thing that's nice about the song. Um, and Richie was like kind of big into that kind of thing, uh, which was a really, really healthy influence, you know, like so it makes things slightly less 
rigid. I mean, it's the kind of thing we were we were leaning towards anyway. But it's always good when somebody has a point of view that you agree with, you know. Um, but yeah, so it was yeah. really really cool. Uh, we we ended up doing three songs. One fourth song we didn't finish, or at least we got we recorded it and we didn't feel like it was good enough. Um, and maybe it'll come out at some stage. Um, it was close to being awesome, but just not quite there yet. But yeah, so it, essentially, like Richie, Richie and Tommy. Um, they allowed us to think differently, like in the same way that Rob did, like everyone that you work with, you know, has a slightly different approach. You know, Garrett Manick was great initially for us, but by the time we got to work with Tommy and Richie, I think our musicality had improved to the point that we could speak the same language, you know? Um, and it, yeah, it just, it just ended up being such a cool process. You know, we could turn to, to, to Tommy and Richie and say, well, what if we do this? they'd say, yeah, you could do this. What about that? And then between us, we'd come up with some, something that none of, the, none of us on our own would have thought of, but it only comes from being in a room together, you know? And yeah, I would recommend it. I would, if you ever get the chance to work with Ricky and Tommy. <laughs> um, I've, I've talked about Tommy on the podcast with other people as well. Uh, Steve Ryan from Windings talked about recording uh, with him as Give a Man a Kick, I think, back in back in the day and ah. their van breaking down on the way on the way up to Donegal. But like, is, is that a thing? Like you go up to Donegal and you're kind of like cut off from the rest of oh, Ireland yeah. for a while. So yeah, it's, so it's just kind of nice to be there. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. Like he has this place in Terman, which like the studio is it's one of the biggest spaces I've ever seen. Like you know, it's bigger than Grouse Lodge, and it's got this beautiful view of these Donegal Mountains. And you are yeah, you're quite removed from anywhere, you know. And that's a good thing, you know, um, that you're just you're just solely focused on on that. His equipment is unreal as well. You have to remember, like Tommy's been playing like as a session musician since he's like sixteen. So he's been traveling around different bands, picking up bits of not only tips and, and tricks, but also gear from around the world. Like he's got an amazing selection of guitar pedals that I really enjoyed messing around with. Like, you know, it's it difficult to recreate live, you know, when you've got like 20 guitar pedals, 20 of Tommy's like bespoke guitar pedals, pedals to do a guitar line. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable experience. Like, I, I think that's a really healthy thing. Yeah, like it's kind of similar in Grouse Lodge as well, which is obviously another really famous studio in Ireland that um, like block party and stuff would have used in the past but I think that I guess the difference is like instead of like a modular space that like a producer you know Johnny Rock producer turns up in this is like Tommy's studio that he's built from a teenager to now like you know and it's like you can see all that love and care and forethought from a guy that's not only spent time on the road or in bands but also rehearsal studios and recording studios yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a proper once in a lifetime experience. Great. And 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 Tommy is also the frontman of like one of those great uh, kind of cult bands uh, yeah, that Berkeley. were around when you guys first started. Berkeley, man, what a band! Yeah, uh, unbelievable band. Actually, speaking of bands that you would hope think you're good, I think I mentioned earlier on when we were, when we were talking about the Choice Music Prize. I mean, you know, you're talking about proper musos that know their stuff, and they would have been exactly the kind of band that I would have been like. You know, looking at through the corner of my eye, saying, "You know, do they think we're good? Are we? Are we good? You know, can I ask them? No, can't ask them. Can I? Can I? I'll just wonder." And um, yeah, great band. Tommy's a cool guy as well. Really, really nice fella, um, and a fantastic musician. 
yeah um and and like the album itself uh true surrender i i don't know if it is your best work i think i think it's certainly up there i think it's definitely one of um the best irish albums that i've heard this year and one of the things that really shines through on it is this kind of positive energy was that one of the things that you went in kind of uh the theme that you wanted to write about like let's try and write a positive album because it feels really like uplifting and kind of like arm around the shoulder of someone and like saying everything's gonna be all right yeah, I think that kind of clear-eyed optimism is just a byproduct of feeling a little bit more comfortable about what you're doing. You know, like um, when as you gradually kind of shed the the bullshit that we were talking about earlier on, it gives you a certain amount of freedom to to be positive and be uplifted. I mean, why why wouldn't you? You know, like we've we've got nothing to complain about. There's plenty of people in worse situations than us, and um, and. You know, that's always something that we've avoided. You know, like, actually, you must find this. If you're interviewing bands, you must get a lot of the, oh, the gruel of the the life on the road or being in a band. People don't get it and stuff. Like, people get it, man. People have their own shit. Like, everybody's got their own shit. You don't fucking hear about it for the most part unless they're in that kind of a mood. But, like, if you're, if you're reflecting what you're really feeling, right, and if what you're really feeling is the freedom to be, like, properly creative, you know, with people that you respect, well, that tends to come across as positive. Um, you know, and that said, like, there is proper introspection on that album. I think Am I Done is a really, really stark song. I know a certain group of my mates have have have, um, have separately and individually kind of told me that, that that's the kind of song that has really made them kind of, you know, stare off into the middle distance stoically. Um, I think that's a great thing, you know, but I, I think that light and shade is... is probably a little bit more balanced on True Surrender than it might have been on, say, You Can Make Sound. And and how did you get on over the summer festivals playing it uh, playing it around the place? An electric Picnic, I'm, I know that you were at as well. Yeah, God, it was it was great. Like, the Electric Picnic was, um, yeah, it was one of the best experiences I've had in the band. Like, we did two shows. We did that Salty Dog thing in the, at midnight, um, and we did the Electric Arena before that. It was cool. Actually, you know, Kieran and uh, John Bro had this idea to kind of film us rehearsing for it and then film the gig. They put out a video for SOS um, like a week before last and it really kind of captures that whole mood, you know, where we're kind of, you know, getting ready for those shows and then you can see this massive crowd and electric picnic. And God, I mean, you know, we were quite early on on the Friday. We didn't expect that size of the crowd. Like it was huge. It was really nice to see that people are, uh, like enjoying the new album that much and and uh, yeah it's a lot of fun we've done a couple of Spanish festivals as well we're off to Germany on tour shortly and um, yeah it's, it's it's a lot of fun like it really is it, you know like when you play live um, there's always this argument you know do you recreate the album or do you do a live version and is that a cop out either way do you know what I mean so if you're just doing a facsimile of the album track is that what somebody wants when they turn up or do they want a new experience? Or should you be doing something completely different so that somebody that's never heard you before gets a buzz from what you're doing? So we always have that push and pull. And realistically, like it takes, any band will tell you this, like when you release a, a new album, it takes a tour to work out that, 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 uh, that, that set list. You know, like it, doesn't, like it doesn't matter how much pre-production you do. Like you could spend a week in a studio working out how, not only how to play the, the songs accurately, um, but maybe you might rearrange them, but it doesn't really matter until you start getting in front of people because that's what's going to change everything. Like you'll find that, like you know, 
you've got to change an arrangement. You've got to make it longer, make it shorter, maybe build an extra outro, maybe create a medley into something else. Maybe you'd come up with a new piece of music that's an intro, you know, and all those things change how you play. Sorry, I've got off on a rant here. It was good. Yeah, it's good to play those festivals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I I won't give you too much longer, uh, but did... People talked about uh, Electric Picnic kind of being different this year, you know, that it's a kind of a different audience, uh, that it's a, attracting like a much younger audience. I don't know if you got to walk around and experience it over the weekend. How, how did you feel about the festival and what did you see that was uh, good? Oh, it's oxygen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's, 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 that's cool. That's fine as well, yeah. But, it, but, you know, that's grand. Like, that's totally cool. But it's, it's not like, uh, I think, I think... You know, we all know what's taking what's taking electric picnics place. Like it started this year and it'll hopefully be on next year, you know, like it's a cool festival and Ireland needs big festivals where like Irish bands can get a chance to play on big stages to big crowds and those big crowds need a chance to get together and have fun and see big international acts. So like it's it's just interesting. It's evolved so much over the last ten years um completely, like, you know, uh but um but yeah it's cool like i mean you know that's that's cool right yeah yeah i'm 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 fine with it you know there's pl- there's plenty of festivals to go around you don't have to try very hard to uh find your buzz <coughs> yeah uh, were you there yourself Electric picnic? No, no, I wasn't this year. No, uh, I I had tickets, but I I sold them. I was just like, ah, oh, there's just there's just not enough pulling me there. There's like ten x ten x that I really wanted to see, but like I was just like, it's not worth it's not worth this money for for those acts. But um, but anyway, that's fine. Cool. Um, the the Irish tour. You're you're heading out on uh Irish tour. You're you're hitting a load of spots around the country, and then uh culminating in the Olympia in uh Dublin at the end of October. Uh, no, November tenth. Um, yeah. is have you played? Have you guys played the Olympia before? We've played it as for like kind of event nights. Like we we did obviously the repeal fundraiser recently there. Um, done hard work in Casero there before, but we've never headlined it. Um, so yeah, it's a real, it's a real privilege. Um, really looking forward to it, to be honest with you. Um, I think by that stage we'll have done the German and Irish tour, and uh, you know it's going to be a, a really, really exciting live show. You know, like it's, it's, uh, we just can't wait to do it. Yeah, um, like I think it's going to be one of our best shows. 